Let's pray. Loving God, you have showered us with your abundant mercy in Jesus Christ. He is our satisfaction, our hope, our love in this life and the next. And so may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. Amen. Some of you are familiar with the movement that emerged about 20 years ago uh, called the New Atheism. Uh, it centers around a few thinkers like uh, Richard Dawkins, and it differs from previous atheists in some ways, um, mainly in that it not only rejects the idea of God, but it's also very highly political. And uh, New Atheists believe that religion is completely irrational and uniquely dangerous, okay? So instead of being comprised of deep and honest scholars, which is kind of what the old atheists were, um, who defend their positions against theism, theism being the belief in God, the new atheism has caught this current wave of secularism and aggressively blames religion for the world's ills, okay? So just kind of a different tack. No longer defensive, more on the offense now from the new atheists. Um, and by the way, if you wanted to dig into this a little bit more and uh, hear some good answers to new atheism, I would recommend Atheist Delusions by uh, David Bentley Hart, which is also very aggressive <laughs> in his response. So take that for what it's worth. Um, all religion for the new atheists is a target for sure, but men like Dawkins set their sights particularly on Christianity. I think it's because it's what's most familiar to them and safest to attack. Uh, Dawkins isn't very good, however, at castigating Christianity, chiefly because he doesn't understand it. He's never bothered to read theology at any depth, and rather than listening well in order to learn, uh, he overgeneralizes, and when it comes to reading the Bible, he remains very much at a surface level, kind of like a young child would who hasn't quite developed the reading skills or the analytical skills needed for understanding the scripture. One of Dawkins' mantras, though, has caught on and is worth thinking about. He says that Christians foolishly worship a God who demands our complete allegiance and worship. And Dawkins asks, what kind of God is this who would be so arrogant and so self-centered as to demand full worship from his people? Is that the kind of God you really want to follow? Dawkins asks. Now, we could give a number of responses, uh, but in the event that there's someone in this room who's wondered about the answer to that question, and I imagine at some point we all have, let's try to answer it in good faith. And I'd like to do that in a couple of ways. The first response I'll give, I'll make brief and kind of to the point. We love what we worship, and we worship what we love. Dawkins envisions God as a tyrant, demanding allegiance and obeisance, whereas the Bible portrays a God where worship is grounded in and growing in love. So God's requirement to worship Him is 
the means of cultivating the love relationship. Okay? Not a one-way street. God's not after power. He doesn't need us to have power. God is after a love relationship with His creation. Related to that, God is the ultimate good. So in worshiping God alone is the only way to cultivate ultimate good and ultimate love in our hearts. It's the way we become the human beings we were designed to be. So, you want to be the best that you can possibly be? Of course you do. Christians say, worship and follow the triune God. And in doing that, that life of goodness and love gets cultivated. Now, all of this escapes Dawkins. Uh, if God's a tyrant requiring our service and allegiance, because without it, he can't be an all-powerful God, I can kind of see Dawkins' point. But that's a distorted view of the God of the Bible. Not even close to who the triune God is and how he's created us. So that's kind of one response. The second response I want to get from 2 Samuel. It's not disconnected to what we just said, but let's just pull it out of this text a little bit more if we can. 2 Samuel 7. David has been wildly successful in subduing his enemies and building a kingdom from the ruins of Saul's reign and the period of the judges. As was very common in the ancient Near East, a king would often respond to victories like that by building a grand temple or an edifice for their god. And then the god, and you can kind of find this in ancient writings, the god, in order to reward the king, would then promise future victories, or at least this is what we read about. A sort of quid pro quo arrangement, okay? I've done some stuff for you, you make not my name famous, build me a big building, edifice, temple, whatever, and then I'll give you more victories. And so there's this quid pro quo back and forth. And what we hear in 2 Samuel is very different. It comes from a very different sort of God who doesn't seem particularly interested in those sorts of relationships. David, on the heels of his victories just like all the other kings, wanted to build God a house. Seemed reasonable to do that. He had defeated Goliath, eluded Saul, crushed the Philistines. I mean, he wanted God to get credit, right? There's no harm in that. God had built him a house and building a palace. He was in his palace and he looks over and he sees the tent. He's like, I got to build you a tent. Or sorry, a palace, a building. And that was standard operating procedure in the ancient Near East. So he tells the prophet Nathan. And Nathan says, yeah, seems like a good idea, David. Why don't you contact a good architect and let's get moving on this. Interesting phrase. That very night. Not just sometimes we hear in the scripture. Sometime later or later or one day. That very night, the same one when they had the conversation. No delay. God often delays in the Bible. You notice this? Makes us wait around for him. But on this one, there was swift and clear response from God. Nope. You are not going to build me a house, David. What makes you think I need one? 
I've been on the move with my people through the messiness of wilderness wandering, conquest, slavery, salvation. I'm determined to see this thing through. I'm not done showering you with grace. And I won't rest until Israel is finally settled and finally home. On top of that, David, you're not going to exalt my name until I exalt yours. I'm not finished making you great. A king like no one has ever seen, David. We read about it in Psalm 89 earlier. In fact, David, you're not going to build me a house. I'm going to build you a house. I'm going to build you a dynasty, a royal line that will never die out. And those kings will not simply be kings. There was a turn of phrase in verse 14. Did you see that one? They will be sons, sons of God, son of God becomes his title, Solomon's title, the descendants, the royal house that will set the world right as sons of God himself. Take that, David. You think I need something from you? You think I need power and obedience and money and fame and houses? Think again. What I need, God says, is to relentlessly pour out my grace on you and give you a peace that surpasses understanding and give you a rest that you can't find in anything this world has to offer. I need to give you a home built on eternal foundations that will never fade away. Do we think of our God in this way? That he is on a relentless mission to bring his children to his own home, to peace. And he won't rest himself until he takes care of us. What kind of God is this? What kind of God obsesses with serving us? Here's an absolute truth you can hang your hat on. You'll never be able to understand or accept Christianity. You'll never be able to be a Christian until you get used to the idea that Jesus is here to serve you. Sounds weird, doesn't it? This is why Dawkins doesn't get it. When Jesus was washing the disciples' feet, do you recall what Jesus said to Peter when he objected to Jesus washing his feet? Do you remember that? What did he say? What did Jesus say? If I don't wash your feet, finish it. You have no part with me. Was that hyperbole? I don't think it was. I think he was being honest. Peter. Unless you allow me to wash you, you are not part of me. If we think that God is a tyrannical despot out for power and control, then what will our response be? We will do our best to strike the best deal possible and do what we can to make sure we stay on his good side. What a miserable life that has to be. When we lived in Scotland, we had a neighbor in Iran, from Iran, 
and it's Iran. It's not Iran, okay? It's Iran. She would often confide in my wife about her life, which, like a lot of people, wasn't nearly as peaceful and glamorous as they portray it to be. Uh, once she shared with Maria how guilty she felt about past failures and how hard she was working to justify herself and to make up for it, knowing that if she didn't, God wouldn't bless her and her eternal destiny hung in the balance. And she was tortured. How do you think that was going for her? She was a miserable person. Absolutely miserable. Our friend couldn't imagine a God whose mission is the joy of serving and blessing and hanging out with us for eternity. Our God is the one who's most comfortable on his knees washing dirty feet. And our role is to get good at sitting back and propping our feet up. It's counterintuitive. This is what the church has always referred to as grace. God already knows everything about us. All our sin. All our mess. And there's nothing we can do to cause him to love us less. Nor is there anything we can do to force him to love us more. This is what our dear friend in Scotland didn't understand. This is what Richard Dawkins doesn't understand. All the other ancient gods would do some good for the king. The king would work hard to pay him back and buy favor for the future. The god would smile on the king, relent and say, okay, I'll help you out some more. But the God of the Bible, the God we encounter in Jesus, covers our past, present and future apart from anything we do and then and only then do we respond in worship and obedience and that's the key we're not trying to earn favor with God who's this self-centered ogre we are responding in hearts of love and joy and gratitude and peace Dawkins thinks God is demanding something from us in order to gain something for himself. But the God of 2 Samuel 7 is a father who just loves to love his children. And nothing will stop his mission, his promise, his loving loyalty to us. I wonder if you heard that in the text. Verses 12 and 13, death won't stop it. Even after David dies, the blessing that he promises to David will forever continue, just as if David was alive. Verses 14 and 15, sin won't stop it. Even though God knows that David's descendants will mess it all up and disobey and run after other gods, that will not remove his covenant love from David's line. And then verse 16. Time itself will not defeat his promise to David. It stands for eternity. Now, that sounds great. Any of you know the history of Israel? Solomon came along, 
How did he go after Solomon? Not so well. Eventually, what happened to Israel? The ten tribes exiled in, in, with the, uh, the Assyrians. The two tribes exiled into Babylon. And the prophets spend almost all of their time trying to make the case that God's promises have not failed. Because it looked like David's line had died out, the kings were gone, and, they, and God's promises had come to nil. And the prophet said, hang on, hang on, hang on, something's coming, something's coming. And in the Gospel of Matthew, a baby is born. And what does Matthew do? Matthew is at pains to identify the royal lineage of that baby. He's born to Mary and to Joseph, who are direct descendants of King David. Jesus is the son of David, not just a son of David or a son of God like David and Solomon were, but now the son of God. And he's a king like no other king. He doesn't need God's discipline because he perfectly obeys the Father. He perfectly fulfills everything it means to be a king, including sacrificing himself for his people. And he's raised from the dead so that sin and death and time can't keep him or us down. And now, and now, the promise of 2 Samuel that was given directly to David comes home to us here, 21st century. Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 12. But to all who believed and accepted him, he gave the right to become what? Children of God. Sons of God. Kings and queens. A royal line. A royal priesthood. The people of God. The body of Christ. A new community, the church. This is the mission of God through David and through Christ that his overwhelmingly abundant free grace creates a new people who are together the light of the world. This is grace. You know what's surprising? How truly uncomfortable we are with grace. Have you ever been at a lunch or dinner with a friend and the bill arrives and your friend grabs the bill as if to pay for it, him or herself? What do you do? Oh, oh, no, no. Let me, let me pay for half. Surely I can. You don't have to do that. Blah, blah, blah. It pains us. To receive that grace without earning it. By the way, if you take me to lunch or dinner, I will not do that to you. That's my, that's my promise to you. Comfortable with grace. Over the years, I've asked people why they struggle so much in a particular area of their lives. And sometimes the response has been, because I don't like to ask for help. I know that feeling. Grace makes us squirm. It exposes us to our own hearts. 
I don't deserve to be treated so well. So I resist the grace. If I receive grace, it reminds me that I'm not so holy, on the inside at least. Yes, that's true. We don't deserve it. But God knows that already. And he still loves us enough to call us sons of God. Not so long ago, I sat with a gentleman here, mid-90s, had not followed Christ, grew up Catholic, had not followed Christ most of his adult life. He asked his daughter to find him a priest because he felt like he would be dying soon. The grief that he went through as I talked to him about grace through double masks and a shield and we could barely hear each other as I'm screaming to him in the senior living facility and everyone in the hall, all the older folks had come to their rooms. They had rolled themselves to, the, to their rooms as they're listening in. I'm screaming to him about the grace of God and he just can't get his head around it. And he kept saying, do you mean, do you mean that God would forgive me for that? And all I could do was keep pointing him to Christ, keep talking about Christ, his infinite and everlasting love for us. Yes, we don't deserve it. But God already knows that. And he still calls us children of God. For whatever reason, Dawkins can't conceive of a people who would be so amazed by grace that they would give their lives and their obedience and their money and their time and their worship to an ancient male Jew who lived briefly, died violently, and rose victoriously. For him, those people must be deluded or insane or worse. But for those of us who are aware of our own hearts and also understand the inexplicable power of the grace of God, we just can't help it. We can't help but respond with hearts of loves, love and lives of obedience. May God give us grace and power to follow him all our days. In the name of the Father, Son and Holy Spirit. Amen.